0: Hello, this is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Natural disasters are obviously horrible, but what's even worse is the opportunistic predators who slither out into the opening, looking to take from those who are already suffering. We've seen videos of looting and burglary, but there are jumps in sexual assaults, too, especially with single mothers who have no means to leave the affected area. They try to find food and lodging among strangers, which leaves them vulnerable. Some of these strangers have good intentions. Most of them do, in fact, but some don't. Serial killer Israel Keyes, once caught, spoke of wanting to volunteer after natural disasters so that he could kill with ease. He and authorities would blame the deaths on the disaster after burying bodies in the rubble. Those with an evil heart seem to have a talent for destroying even the best of intentions. They can kill feelings of hope and trust single-handedly, while hundreds of others are trying to nurture and grow it. In Armero, Colombia in 1985, a natural disaster in the form of a volcano killed almost all the people living in the small town. This is their story and the mystery behind the missing children of Armero. Nevada de Ruiz is a large volcano similar to Washington's Mount St. Helens. The volcano sits 5,000 meters above sea level and the top of it is covered in glaciers and snow. In fact, Nevado means snow-capped in Spanish. All that snow and ice played heavily into a horrible tragedy that potentially could have been avoided. In recorded history, this volcano had two prior notable eruptions. One in 1595. This eruption killed 636 people. And 250 years later, in 1945, a second eruption killed over a 1,000 people. Many of life's lessons are learned from life's worst times and worst mistakes. After these disasters, many people left, but others simply couldn't afford to leave, or were afraid to leave loved ones and what was left of their homes. They stayed, started over, and hoped for the best. A 160 years and several generations would grow old before the volcano would remind them once again of the frailty of humans versus a natural disaster. In early 1985, the volcano began stirring. The early activity was marked by earthquakes and visible vents or openings in the earth where gases are released. Geothermal researchers visited the summit in January, and emergency planning began. They noticed a new pit in the bottom of the crater. A committee formed with the support of local government to monitor the volcano. Ironically, a month later, the region's only seismograph... The instrument that measures vibrations caused by earthquakes or volcanoes broke. A month after that, three geologists and a seismologist visited the area at the request of the Colombian Civil Defense Agency. They all agreed that the activity at the volcano was typical for the prediction of a large eruption. Colombia requested several seismographs and other necessary equipment to monitor the volcano. One of the chief geologists from the United States Geological Survey team wrote in a note to the United Nations Disaster Relief Organization that the opportunity for an eruption was clear, and it was unfortunate that we, meaning the USGS team, could spare no one from Hawaii or Cascades observatories. This person said, If the volcano is to blow, let us hope that both we and the Colombians are prepared. I can assure you, they were not. On September eleventh, 1985, the volcano blew gas and steam for seven hours, but no magma or lava erupted. This visible event finally caught the attention of the government, who began to develop a response plan. They drafted a volcanic hazard map. If the volcano erupted, the predicted blast would melt the glacier, causing water to pour down the mountain. Certain areas were in danger from a lahar, I had no idea what that meant, so for those of you who are also lacking that knowledge, a lahar is a term used to describe a flowing mixture of water and volcanic debris. It happens when heat escapes from a volcano and melts the ice and glaciers at a very fast rate. The lahars are very destructive, and they can flow quickly and deeply, destroying any structure in their path, primarily by undermining their foundations. Some lahars will leave a frail, ramshackle hut standing, but bury it in mud, which then hardens to a near concrete hardness. The geography of the mountain showed one valley, and this valley was fed by two rivers. The water would pick up mud and rocks and thunder down both of the rivers, then they would meet, doubling their power. If you followed the path of the river, you would come to a town containing thirty thousand people. This town was Armero. It was a farming community, once called the White City, for the blanket of cotton farms that surrounded its bustling commercial center. Today, the blanket covering Armero is made of volcanic mud that buried thousands of Armero's residents. It's now a cemetery holding the graves of thousands of people, pets, and livestock. The town was never rebuilt and remains a ghost town. The unnatural landscape is haunting to look at, Lower stories of buildings are buried under the ground with upper levels and roofs protruding from the earth. However, in 1985, November, it was a peaceful place. The people here lived quiet lives, far away from guerrilla warfare that plagued the rest of Colombia at the time. Residents are now being told by scientists that they faced destruction from a volcano that was located over 40 miles away. Most of the villagers didn't believe anything was going to happen. The volcanoes hadn't made a peak for more than a hundred years. Why would it happen now? The authorities and scientists did share some practical points. They were aware that many volcanoes are active for years without erupting. They admitted that a plan to evacuate Armero would be a crippling expense. It would entail uprooting people from their homes. It could and would all be done if it was necessary. But everybody needed a date. They needed to know when would it happen, next week, next month, next year? And the scientists couldn't tell them. It wasn't within their scope of capabilities. Thousands of people were depending on the scientists, who really couldn't do anything but guess. Unfortunately, they ran out of time on November 13, 1985. That day was dark and raining. There was a fairly strong and large storm system passing by. Even so, locals noticed that small amounts of ash had fallen earlier in the day, but this wasn't necessarily new to locals. That night, the people of Armero tried to sleep through the thunder and lightning from the storm, which is why many of them completely missed the fact that the volcano had erupted. Around 9 p.m., right at bedtime, some of them began to hear noises from the volcano. They looked towards the mountain. It was overcast, but they could see flashes of what could have been lightning, but it looked a little bit different. There were sounds to accompany the light, but they were muffled and sounded far away. What the villagers didn't know was that what they were listening to from 40 miles away was a huge blast of hot volcanic gas that quickly began melting the glacier. The river of mud was already on its way down the valley. A local described the sound. When the water began to tear down on armero at first it sounded like a raging river like you hear sometimes when it's raining in the country but sometimes it sounded like a gas can when you open it or a pressure cooker hissing the volcanic deluge reached the city at eleven o'clock that night and in less than an hour a peaceful prosperous community disappeared Armero before the mudslide contained mostly one and two story houses with small front yards There was a plaza and a central park. Martha Lucia birthed her first son in Armero in 1980. She named him Sergio Milandro Lopez. Her relationship with Sergio's father ended, but she met another man named Dario, and they moved in together. At the time of the mudslide in 1985, Sergio was five years old. At this point, the volcano had been active for more than a year, Media had been releasing reports about what was going on, but like many other residents of Armero, Martha Lucia and her family had no idea what could happen to them. On November 13th, she drove an hour away for some medical testing. The testing confirmed what she had already suspected. She was three months pregnant. When she got back to Armero, it was nearing 7 p.m. She left her car about a block from her house in a parking spot she rented, and she began walking to her house. As she was walking, she felt something land in her eyes. She believed it was dust, because it had been a hot summer and there was a lot of dust in the air, but when she got home and turned on the radio, she heard that it was ash falling from the volcano. The wind was carrying it towards Armero, and the local news recommended that locals cover up their water tanks. If the output of ash increased, they should wear masks to protect themselves. Other than that, they should stay inside. Martha wasn't worried. She proceeded with her family's normal evening bedtime routine, which was that the family would take a bath before bed. As she bathed Sergio, he talked about how he wanted a baby brother, and that's what he was going to ask baby Jesus for, for Christmas. Martha hadn't totally adjusted to the idea of having another child, so she never told Sergio that she was pregnant. She tucked him into his bed, and after saying his prayers, he asked her about the thunder and lightning, and why the sky was lighting up, and What were those strange noises? She realized he was frightened, and, as he hugged his doll, named Pluto, close to his chest, she explained the sounds to him. He, in turn, explained them to his doll, saying the sounds were nothing. You don't need to be afraid. Then he hugged the doll and fell asleep. Martha began preparing herself for bed, but took a moment to watch TV. She caught a snippet of news saying that an eruption was taking place at the volcano. She remembered praying for all the people living nearest the volcano. She prayed for God to protect them and for nothing bad to happen to them. Shortly after 10 p.m., she fell asleep. She felt like she'd barely closed her eyes when her husband woke her up and began getting dressed. She asked where he was going, and he said that he was going to go to the fire station to see if he could help out, just in case there was a flood. Martha said, I want to go with you, and I want to hear what they tell you so she threw on clothes and followed him. As they walked outside, they realized something was falling from the sky, but it wasn't rain, it was heavier, more like sand or heavy ash. She went back into the house and into Sergio's room. She thought again about taking him with them. She hated to wake him up, knowing it would be a struggle to get him to go back to sleep. She didn't think they'd be gone for long, and they had a live-in nanny, so she made the decision that most of us as parents would make. She left her sleeping son at home, safely tucked into his bed and in the care of Rubiella, the nanny. Martha and Dario took the car the three short blocks to the fire station. When they arrived, everything seemed calm and quiet. The lights were off and no one came out to talk to them. They decided to turn the car around and head home. Maybe they were worrying over nothing. They were about a block and a half from their home when all the street and house lights went out. Martha said to her husband, hurry up, because Sergio's going to wake up. When his fan goes off, he always wakes up. They made the turn toward their house and were only one block away when they saw the muddy water rushing toward them on the street. The water descended at full speed. People were leaving their houses, afraid of what was happening. Dario hopped out of the car, fearing it would get waterlogged if he drove it further into the water. He shouted across the rushing sound of water telling Maria to take the car to a nearby town and that he was going to go get Sergio and Rubio. The three of them would take the other car and meet up with Martha. Martha's mind brought images of Sergio and Rubiella perched atop of their dining room table. She was petrified and frozen in place. She heard the shouts of people telling her to move and start the car and go, but she couldn't process the shouts. She watched as Dario tried to make his way to the house on foot, The water surged down the street. It was too fast and kept pushing him backwards towards the car. He got up several times, trying again and again, but he couldn't make forward progress. Martha joined Dario and tried to move up the street with him towards another street. There were a large group of people pushing towards them. Martha ran, trying to keep up with Dario, but she slipped, and he stopped to help her up. People were panicking all around them. The crowd bore down on the couple, stepping on Martha as she lay on the ground. With Dario's help, she was finally able to get up, but the water was rising quickly and would soon lift them off their feet. They pushed toward a nearby tree and clung to it. The pressure of the water pushed hard against them, and as the water rose and fell, it lifted and lowered them, sandpapering them against the tree. They soon realized the tree wouldn't hold their weight much longer, Luckily, on a rooftop nearby, just a few feet away, there were some people who helped pull them up. It was pitch black now. All the survivors could see were flashes of light, almost like lightning. They didn't know if the light actually was bolts of lightning, gas pipes exploding, or electrical fires, or something from the volcano itself. Above the din of rushing water, they heard people next to them on the roof. There was a boy crying then a woman crying and a man shouting for help. Martha and Dario were desperate to reach their house, but there was nothing they could do. On top of everything else, the sky suddenly burst open and it began to pour. Martha began vomiting and crying in panic. When she calmed herself, someone else began to panic. It seemed like everyone on that roof that night took a turn, and that's how they spent the entire night. When the sun finally rose and they could see again, the town was covered by fog and a dark ashy haze. The mudslide stopped, and where once you could see houses, doors, and windows, and color and life, all you could now see was rooftops. It looked like a giant river bank, with roofs protruding from the mud. What was once colorful was now gray. Most of the people who survived were naked— The mudslide had torn off their clothes. The town had been leveled, and the few buildings that remained were entirely buried in thick mud, and it was growing harder by the minute. Survivors would hear the cries of the injured asking for help. They could hear people buried under the earth crying out to be saved. When the thick fog lifted, Martha saw that her home no longer existed. A small plane flew overhead. Everyone on the roof signaled it with their arms that the plane didn't stop. The pilot was a crop duster. He flew over the scene that morning at 6 a.m., and all he saw was mud. He estimated that about 2% of the population survived. In reality, of the approximately 30,000 residents, more than 23,000 died that night. Martha, still trapped on that roof after 12 hours, was feeling the effects of shock. She wasn't able to think straight, talk, or say anything. She felt nothing physically because she was overwhelmed emotionally. Rescue workers started drifting in around noon. They were from the Red Cross, the Civil Defense, the military police, and neighboring volunteers. The rescue workers weren't trained on how to pull people out of a giant pool of mud, but they learned on the job. They began looking for floating inner tubes. That way they could walk through the mud and debris, feeling with their legs and feet for bodies, then pulling them up to the surface and laying them over the tubes to transport them to solid surfaces. Journalists reported that the town was in urgent need of help. They needed heavy machinery from the nearest towns to help remove the mud and debris, because if the removal wasn't completed in the next 12 hours, the mass of mud, rocks and sand and ash would solidify and no one would get out. Rescue workers weren't prepared. They brought equipment to respond to burns, but instead, what they encountered was mutilated individuals with multiple fractures or objects lodged in their bodies. They didn't have the right tools to treat the injured. They begged for suturing supplies, bandages, and materials for cleaning wounds, medications, and antibiotics. Dario and Martha were very lucky. They were removed from the rooftop at three in the afternoon and transferred to a nearby town where they were placed in temporary camps. Martha didn't have any serious wounds, just some bruising on her arms and legs, but the psychological impact of the tragedy was something else. They were quickly evaluated on the scene and then put on a bus. Martha remembers the bus ride, saying that it was dead silent. No one spoke She said it was like transporting livestock. Dario hadn't been hurt badly either, so once he knew the plan for Martha, he went back to look for Sergio as quickly as he could. Martha would be transferred to Bogota. The medical staff were worried she might miscarry. They told her that the baby was there. It was hanging on to life, but it was still there. So she needed to be placed on total bed rest. Back in Armero, a 13-year-old Colombian girl named Omira Sanchez Garcon knelt, trapped under debris. She had been home with her father and brother and aunt while her mother was away in Bogota on business. They were awoken when the volcanic mudflow hit their house, but Omira became immediately trapped under the debris. She had been home with her father and brother and aunt while her mother was away in Bogota on business. That night they were awoken when the volcanic mudflow hit their house. Omira became immediately trapped under debris. Several hours later, the first rescuers and volunteers, looking through the ruins, found Omira. She had managed to free her hand and held it as high above the water as she could reach, signaling that she was there and alive. Rescuers rushed to her aid. She was trapped and immovable from the waist up and it was impossible to free her legs without breaking them. They freed her upper body as much as possible and propped some wood near her for her to hang on to. They placed an inner tube around her body to help keep her afloat. When divers arrived, it was confirmed that Omira's legs were bent and trapped beneath a brick wall that had fallen on top of them. Her aunt, who drowned, was still clinging to Omira's feet and legs. Moments after she'd been found... Red Cross agents, survivors, emergency officials, TV reporters, foreign and domestic journalists, and others gathered around her. They all worked hard to find a way to release her from the grip of her house and ruins. Video footage from that day shows a huddle of strangers talking with her from above, and in one clip, she tells everyone to please go home and get some rest, and then come back and help her out. Divers tried diving down and pulling on the corpse of her aunt. They tried pulling up on the debris, but nothing moved. At one point, rescuers fastened her aunt's body to a rope connected to a helicopter. Even with the force of the helicopter, the corpse and debris still wouldn't yield. Officials and volunteers lacked the proper equipment to perform an amputation, which was the only remaining option. If they tried, with the equipment they had on hand, it was very likely Omira would bleed out and die. Eventually, experts concluded the only way to save her would be to drain the water with pumps and loosen the ruins to set her free, but they simply didn't have enough time. She lived for 60 hours, stuck under the surface of the water, surrounded by onlookers and unable to move. On her last day, she spoke directly into the camera, addressing her mother, who she never got to see in person. She asked her to try to find a way to get help. Then she told her mother that she loved her and wished her goodbye. In her final hours, she began to hallucinate, saying she needed to get out soon. She'd already missed two days of school, and if she missed more, she'd have to repeat the year. This breaks my heart. You can see where this beautiful girl's priorities were. Her last breath was taken five minutes after 10 a.m. on November 16, 1985. The crowd watched her die, then placed a striped, blue-and-white checkered tablecloth over her head. A photographer named Frank Fernier took several photos of the living O'Myra, including the ones I've shared on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Facebook and Instagram pages. There are links to those in the show notes if you'd like to see them. In one particular photo you'll see a close-up of Omira's beautiful black tight curls, her swollen gray and white hands and her eyes so dark red that they look black. She wears gold earrings, and all around her are the remains of her old life and home. It's a haunting picture, and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind for days. Her eyes appear hauntingly black because the pressure from the water and the debris eventually forced the whites of her eyes to become extremely bloodshot. Looking at the photo, some people claimed to see her courage and dignity in the face of death. It also received criticism by others because they felt it was opportunistic, taking a photo of a helpless dying child. Either way, people from all over the world began to heavily criticize the Colombian government for failing to save her life and the citizens of Armero. Likely, the volunteers did the very best they could to help, but this wouldn't be the only thing that people on the front lines would be criticized for. As O'Myra lay dying, and even after her death, Martha Lucia's family was still searching for Sergio in hospitals, shelters, and nearby towns. They carried photos, asking anyone they met if they'd seen the boy. They released a picture of him with his information on a news report, and Martha asked after him every day from the clinic but there were no signs of Sergio or their nanny, Rubiola. Her extended family became convinced that Sergio was most likely dead, but not Martha. She still feels like he's out there somewhere and he's alive. Her family friends were worried about her mental state, so they didn't bring the topic up in front of her. The pain was hers to bear alone. She had to go back to work about a month after that mudslide. From day to day, she would live and work close to Armero. She spent her days coming and going from work, walking across and finding debris from the houses and families buried in the dirt. She would sometimes meet with other survivors, and there was always one thing they talked about, one thing they all had in common, and that was loss. Martha preferred not to talk about it. It was a defense mechanism she used to protect herself from memories that day. She said she preferred to put a veil over her eyes and a wall up in her heart. She said, I don't hear anything. I don't see anything. I don't know about anything. I don't feel anything. It was the only way for her not to lose her mind after losing her son and experiencing so much pain, living in Armero every day. Six months after the mudslide, she would give birth to her second son, Philip. And three years later, she'd have a third named Camillo. In 1990, they moved from Armero to Bogota and for 27 years, they didn't revisit the subject of Sergio. But all that time, she could never be convinced that her son had died. In 2012, she'd find out that there was a foundation called the Armando Armero, or Armero's Soldiers. It brought people together every year to commemorate the mudslide. That year, she finally felt brave enough to start talking about Sergio again and at the foundation, they suggested she talk to her family about it and ask them all the questions that she had. One of the first people she called was her brother, Gustavo, who helped her in the search for Sergio after the mudslide. In the midst of that conversation, she learned for the first time that her brother had gone almost thirty years without telling her something she felt to be very important. He said in the days after the mudslide he had gone to many nearby towns with Sergio's picture, Most people hadn't seen him, but her brother showed Sergio's picture to a rescue worker with the red cross. Sergio had a very distinctive face, and that was mainly because his eyes were blue in an area where most eyes are brown. The rescue worker said, I saw that boy. I took him because he grabbed my attention. He had the last name Milandro, and the rescue worker knew someone with that same last name. He told Gustavo that the boy had hurt his arm, which he had received treatment for, and then he was sent to the Red Cross. Gustavo went to the Red Cross to ask after Sergio, but no one was able to give any information about him. They couldn't find any records of a boy named Sergio. Gustavo looked and looked, asking all the questions he could think of, but Sergio seemed to have vanished. Gustavo had seen his sister's state after losing Sergio, and he didn't want to depress her more so he never told her this news. When Martha Lucia found out in 2012, a flurry of emotions started. She was angry and frustrated at having lost so many years, spent in silence, instead of looking for her son. But she also felt hope that Sergio could be alive somewhere. She then called her sister, who told her something else about what happened after the mudslide. She said they got a call at home from the Colombian Family Welfare Institute, They told her to come the next day and that a boy, Sergio Milandro Lopez, was there. They said to bring identification, anything they had to show that they were really family. They didn't want to get their hopes up and didn't tell Martha anything because they hoped to surprise her with Sergio's presence. Martha's sister and her husband went to the welfare headquarters the following day. They brought a picture of Sergio and their identification, along with clothes and food for him. When they got there... Family welfare representatives said no one from their organization had called them. There was definitely some kind of mistake, because there was no child there that matched his description or had that name. Of course, Martha's sister and her husband got angry and demanded information. Why would someone call us? Why would someone be so cruel to pretend to be the welfare department? There must be some mistake. They begged to be let in to see if they recognized Sergio among the children— they weren't allowed access. After several hours, they left. They called all the other family welfare offices, but the story remained the same. There must have been a mistake. They didn't make the call, and so forth. Martha's sister and her husband were glad they never told Martha Lucia about that call. They didn't want to risk her losing the baby, and they didn't want to tell her anything else unless they were a hundred percent sure of it. When Martha heard this, she couldn't believe it. She told the story over and over to friends, and eventually she spoke to Yolanda, a lifelong friend of hers. Surprisingly enough, Yolanda had something to tell her, too. A mutual friend of theirs named Luce Angela went to New Orleans six months after the mudslide. She walked into a Bennington store. One of the sales representatives heard her speaking Spanish and asked her where she was from. She said she was from Colombia, and when she did, the man became excited. He explained that his brother had just adopted a boy from the Armero tragedy, and that his new nephew was from there too. Luce took out a photo of Sergio from her wallet and showed the picture to the man. According to Luce, she tried to ask the salesperson for some explanation as to how his brother could have adopted a child from Armero so soon after the disaster. At this point, the salesman became evasive. Luce found it distressing that so quickly after the mudslide, children would be adopted out to strangers in other countries. When Martha called Luce to find out more information, Luce confirmed the story. She was a lawyer now. She said she'd help Martha with whatever she could. Martha found out over the next several months that Sergio wasn't the only child who disappeared. There were many, many more. A man named Francisco González created the Armando Armero Foundation. His hope was to have a historical record of the event, but over time he kept receiving stories of missing children. He would soon hear almost 300 cases like Sergio's, 300 children that apparently survived but never saw their parents again. One example was a woman who said her little sister made it out of the tragedy alive. She found shelter at a farm where there was a man called the Mute. This journalist, Francisco Gonzalez, knew the area well, so he went to the farm and confirmed the story. He showed the owners a picture of the little girl. The people at the ranch said they gave her some clothes, food, and water, and handed her off to an aid worker. Francisco thought the best thing he could do was make it known that these children weren't among the dead. He began posting stories in public places, online and places like town squares, They posted pictures of the missing children, hoping that maybe someone would recognize them. Francisco also asked the Columbian Welfare Institute for any files or information they had on these families. He was told there was a red book that held the records of the children's stories. He asked the welfare office to send him that book, or to publish it publicly, or just tell him where it was so he could go find it. But the welfare office went silent. It would be three years before he would finally see it, in 2015. During those three years, he was busy making his own book, which he called the White Book. He gathered the stories of the missing children, and when he was finally able to compare the two books, he realized there was an inconsistency. The Welfare Office originally said there were 250 registered cases, but in the book there were only 179. In three years, Francisco's White Book contained nearly 300 missing children. By analyzing the two books and looking at videos, it seemed to Francisco that many of the children who arrived at the welfare office were not registered and were instead quickly put up for adoption. They were supposed to go to Colombian families, but Francisco found many children were given to families in other countries. He felt the welfare office wasn't reliable, that they were inefficient, and that perhaps they were hiding something. He tried for two years to get clarity from them, but they refused to answer his calls. So he set out to find answers from somewhere else. He ended up speaking with a woman named Teresa Sabogal. She was an attorney who worked with the Family Welfare Office from 1980 to 1997. She said that she made a large portion of the Red Book. She said, in our marrow, rescue work started the day after the accident, and Teresa remembers her director ordered officials from five departments to the area. Social workers, family advocates, and people who do administrative and technical support were all there and ready to help. They flew over the region, looking for children who survived the tragedy, rescuing them, and bringing them to hospitals all over Columbia. Many children arrived alone. Once treated, the family welfare director asked for all hospital directors to return the children to a regional office in the capital. From there, they were supposed to be placed in different centers belonging to the welfare institution. Once at the institution, they were supposedly registered, sheltered, and prepared to be returned to their relatives if they were found. There were no protocols, so staff had to wing it. With all that improvisation, things happened that weren't great. For example, Francisco shares a story from a girl who had been eight years old at the time. She carried her three-year-old brother in her arms and walked up to a rescue worker who said, Boys to the right, girls to the left. And the older sister says, What about my brother? They separated the two, and she watched as her brother was lifted into a helicopter and then never seen again. Teresa, the lawyer, denies this type of thing happening, but the stories kept coming. She wanted it to be known that there were no cell phones back then. There were no funds for cameras or video recording equipment, and there were no digital archives. Everything was written down, and as far as she knew, the Red Book was the only place they recorded the cases. But over time, it's hard to keep paper in good condition. The book was over 30 years old. It had passed through many hands and many photos had fallen out. Journalists have reported that out of nearly 2,000 children rescued, only about one quarter, or 500 of them, were returned to surviving families. The rest had their faces placed in the media, as welfare offices tried to find more distant relatives to claim the children. Even with these factors, Teresa claimed very few children surviving Armero were left with the welfare office. She believed there were only about 10, and those that small number, were the only ones put up for adoption. She claimed it wasn't true that planes came to Columbia to take children. It wasn't true that children were stolen. And it wasn't true that there were massive numbers of illegal adoptions. But she also recognizes the possibility that someone could have ended up with a child that wasn't theirs. She said it's possible, but there's no proof, no evidence, and no account for such a thing. Journalist Francisco disagrees. He says he has close to 25 cases of adopted children who are in the United States, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, and Peru. He doesn't agree that there were a few mistakes here and there. He thinks that someone with bad intentions took these children and gave them to possibly well-intentioned families who had money and were willing to pay to adopt a child. It's possible the adopting families may not have known where the money was going, or that there may have been criminal involvement. A few years earlier, in 1981, authorities in Colombia uncovered a multi-million dollar international ring in which hundreds of children were kidnapped or bought from their parents and sold using false birth certificates and adoption papers to childless couples in the United States and Europe. This network was said to have included three juvenile court judges, six notaries, two nurses in maternity clinics, and officials of the government's family welfare agency. These children were sold to couples from Spain, Italy, France, the Netherlands, Sweden, and the U.S. There's certainly a possibility that this could have happened to some of those missing children the Armando Armero Foundation has a compendium of 501 recorded stories of family members who are searching for their children. Of these stories, 137 cases have been verified that the children got out of Armero alive. To date, the foundation has conducted four reunions. So now, it's 37 years after the volcano, and Martha is still looking for her son, Sergio, He would be about 42 years old now. I'll post a picture of him as a child on the Twisted Travel and True Crime Facebook and Instagram pages. The missing babies would only be 5 years younger than Sergio, so 37 or older. On the Armando Armero Facebook page, there are over 11,000 members. The Armando Armero Foundation also has a website which will allow you to search for your missing loved ones. There are several photos of very young children whose parents are looking for them, as well as adopted children who are looking for their biological parents. I will link the foundation in this episode's description. It would be an amazing feat if listeners of this podcast lent a hand in reuniting families. If you want to learn more about the Armero disaster and the missing children, I suggest you listen to The Lost Children of Armero on NPR's Radio Ambulante, which I used as a reference and visit the Armando Armero website. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow Twisted Travel and True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. I love to hear feedback, and I love to hear from you listeners. Give me case suggestions. Give me input. I love to hear from you. I have a couple of special thank yous I'd like to give today. The first goes to... Dory Jewell, I hope I said that name correctly, she gave the podcast uh, five stars and she said, I just found this podcast after asking in a social media group for a podcast with just one host and a soothing voice. I was not let down. I'm 12 episodes in and absolutely love the host. She does indeed have a soothing voice and I don't have to deal with faked banter between dual hosts feigning shock and horror. These episodes are well-researched, well-narrated, and just plain seriously awesome to listen to. I'm so thrilled to have found her. Thank you very much, Dory. Dory suffers from migraines, and she really likes to listen to podcasts on her migraine days. I'm grateful to be in her ears on those days. I'd also like to thank Nicole M., who says, Great show, four stars. Great job. Your show is fantastic to listen to. I've binged all the episodes. Thank you for what you do. Hey, Nicole, thank you for listening. I appreciate your kind words. And to all of you listening, I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. I had to share this quick blooper. It was a huge blast of hot volcanic ass gas. <laughs> That's all, folks.